I'd like you to turn to two places in your Bibles. Uh, one is Acts chapter 1, and the other, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. The very end of the Gospel of Matthew. Our text is going to be the very last phrase in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, 20. But to help us appreciate the context of these words, I want us to also notice Acts chapter 1, and I'd like to read for you the first 11 verses. Keep in mind that in, in both of these passages, it's the risen Christ is about, who is about to ascend into heaven, giving last-minute words to his disciples. Beginning in the book of Acts, chapter 1, first 11 verses, Luke writes, In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then over in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jack Wallace, Morris Hammock, Alan Henry, Dick Boyer, Wes Severe. Where are they now? I have absolutely no idea. But those were boys that I grew up with, played with, participated in activities with them. We kept in touch over the years, but gradually, one by one, faded away. Most of you have experienced the same thing. You can remember close companions as you grew up in school or in a neighborhood in which you used to live. You ask yourself, what whatever happened to so-and-so? Where are they now? They're gone. 
The 11 disciples had had a very unique friend for three years, a very close companion, Jesus. But now, well, not only had Jesus said he was leaving them, but he gave these instructions here toward the end of Matthew. Three particular instructions, and they all relate to what we read in chapter 1, verse 8, that they were to be his witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the far ends of the earth. So that was, they knew about that. So now Jesus is saying, Here are how, here's how you're going to carry out my wishes. First of all, go, make disciples of all nations. Secondly, baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, teach them. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now put yourself in the place of those men. Wow, what a monumental task. What staggering commands, what terrifying implications. Talk about mission impossible. How could they, such a little group of weak, finite men, ever hope to accomplish such a task? Well, one answer, of course, is what had already been laid out by Matthew in the first 15 verses, the resurrection of Jesus. The one who was giving these commands was the resurrected divine Son of God. That in itself should remind them they're not doing this by themselves. Secondly, soon to come was Pentecost. Jesus had talked about it, hinted about it. Probably they didn't understand quite what was going to happen, but we know that as a result of that, they received new wonderful power to be his witnesses. But thirdly, Jesus gave them a wonderful promise. Indeed, more than a promise, a glorious fact. And that's our text this morning, the end of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It begins with the word behold, or and behold. King James Version has lo. For some reason, the New International Version has surely. That doesn't seem to quite capture what behold or lo mean. There's a vividness in the original Greek, idu. And when you heard somebody say, idu, it was designed to capture your interest, to, to get your attention. Jesus wanted his disciples to be very attentive to what he was about to say. The idea of those words is, look, listen, take note, pay close attention to what I'm about to say. Having spoken about his limitless authority in verse 18, his limitless commission in verse 19, he now gives them a wonderful, limitless fellowship promise as their constant companion. He does this with two points. First of all, this companionship is going to be personal. Behold, I. I think the Greek word is pronounced ego, but for that we get the word ego has to do with I, me. Jesus is speaking here. No one less than I myself. I am with you. Now in the Greek word order, it's interesting, it's not I am with you, but I with you am. The great uh, titles of Jesus, I am. I am the resurrection, the life, the light of the world. 
the, the uh, way, the truth, the life, and so on. I'm the bread of life. And in between those two great words, he inserts, with you, I, with you, am. Jesus is saying to them, look, the tasks I've given you, I'm not going to depend about you, what you do all by yourselves, but on the power that I will do through you. So when you go and you baptize and you teach, I will be with you, give you the strength to be able to do it. Now, on what basis could Jesus make such a claim as that? If a mere man said this, how could he promise to be with each person? No finite man can be with many different people scattered throughout all the world. Well, of course, the answers are, number one, he was the divine son of God. Number two, he was a resurrected king with authority. And number three, soon he was about to ascend, but then send the Holy Spirit, and in that way be omnipresent in his state of exaltation with all of his people. Jesus did not leave his work to another worldly vice-regent of some kind, or to some kind of super-bishop, or to some kind of earthly holy father. He did not leave it with photogenic leaders or a board of supervisors. He left it to himself to do the work through the church, through his people. When you're saying the books of the Bible, we say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, so on. We just use the one word, Acts. But some have suggested that really the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. And others have said, well, now that's not quite enough. It's the Acts of the Apostles of Jesus Christ. And someone else comes along and says, well, that's not quite enough. This book is are the Acts or the Actions of the Apostles of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we're saying the names of the books of the New Testament, we don't want to have to say all that. Acts is nice, just the one word. But that's what it's all about. There's an Old Testament text that helped illustrate the importance of the personal presence of the Lord. It's in Exodus 33. The people are ready to leave Sinai. Promise has been given. You're going to have a promised land, a land for you. And Moses, you're going to lead them. And Moses responds this way. He says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. You have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, the Lord said to Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses undoubtedly breathed a great sigh of relief and said to the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I need your presence. Another illustration of the personal presence of the Lord is from David Livingston, uh, he's a name that's probably gradually disappearing from many people. He lived a long time ago in the 19th century. A wonderful missionary in Africa. And once he was facing great danger there, and one evening by the flickering candlelight in his tent, he reread 
those words that we're looking at this morning. And they seem to jump out at him. Lo, I am with you. And he thought to himself, that settles it. These are the words of a gentleman of sacred honor. I will trust him and not be afraid. Later, when he returned to England sharing his experiences, he said, God brought him through his troubles and the thing that sustained me in all those years in Africa were those words, Lo, I am with you. And speaking to the eleven then, he says, I will be with you in your teaching, in your writings, in your successors. I'll be with you in times of your sorrow, times of joy, times of turmoil, times of peace, times of despair, times of calm. Whatever your circumstances, I will have a personal companionship with you. Now for us today, this personal relationship is possible because of our union with Jesus by faith. What do we mean by union with Christ? It's an important concept to understand. It's that mysterious, mystical, vital relationship of which Jesus himself speaks in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. It's that vital relationship of which Paul speaks in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is the great privilege of believers. If you're a believer this morning, don't lose sight of that privilege. Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, in some mysterious, unexplainable way, we accept it by faith in the Word of God, He is with us. He's with you, no matter what you're going through. Hold on to that great promise. I'm sure the disciples did as they went forth in their ministry. The second part of this text this morning about the companionship of Jesus, not only is it personal, but it's permanent. The problem with many of our relationships with close friends, as I indicated in my introduction, is they just don't last. If you have a friend that you've known for decades, you are indeed blessed. And I have some people like that. Yet even those people are not real close friends because of geographical distance and so forth. It's a wonderful thing to hold on to those friendships. But that's not true of the companionship for the church. It's a constant companionship. Behold, I am with you always. Now, our English word always doesn't fully convey the Greek expressions found only here in the New Testament. Pasas tas he maras. The whole, W-H-O-L-E, of every day. We have a phrase that's become very well known, well used, should I say, 24-7. What do we mean since somebody says, yeah, that's 24-7. Well, that'll be good for 24-7. It means 24 hours Every day, seven days every week, 24-7. That's the promise that Jesus gives to his disciples. Not just the far horizon of the distant future, it's in view, but each day as we live them, live them. Think of each of our days, one following after one another. 
These are days of trials and troubles and difficulties, but each of them are accompanied with the assurance of His promise and His presence. On the Lord's Day, such as today, on weekdays, on fair days, on foul days, on winter days, on summer days, day after day after day, lo, I am with you always. When you're sleeping, when you're walking, when you're writing, when you're playing, when you're working, when you're reading, when you're studying, during tough days, days of sickness, days of pain, even dying in death. That great phrase in the 23rd Psalm, David writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. For greater emphasis, Jesus says in our text, this is going to continue to the end of the age. The end of the age. The conclusion, the culmination of human history as we know it, or our last final days on earth in death. Mankind lives, we have a sinful world throughout our planet. Yet in there, the light shines of the dark, uh, through the darkness in the gospel. And we have that wonderful privilege to know that Jesus always is with us. Now, through his post-resurrection experiences, Jesus did appear physically with a glorified body with his disciples. So at least for several days, Jesus was physically with them, albeit a different body, one that was able to walk through walls. Nevertheless, a body was able to enjoy fish by the Sea of Galilee for breakfast. Glorified bodies that one day we will have. But now Jesus is indicating to them that I'm going to be leaving you physically. But it's going to be to your benefit because I will be able to be with you spiritually with all of my people. Back in the first chapter of Matthew when uh, the angel was speaking to, to uh, Joseph, so you, shall, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his name, his people from the sins. But he also said, this is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And now, at the very end of Matthew's book, though I am with you always, even to the end of the age, a great, great promise. The question is, has this been true? Has this worked out down through the many centuries since Jesus ascended into heaven? Well, just look at church history. Read autobiographies, even biographies, of wonderful Christian men and women. Listen to their testimonies. Listen to godly leaders that the Lord has raised up and permeating all their lives, all their efforts, certainly as an awareness of their sin, an awareness of their uh, being finite creatures, and yet there's that sense of the presence of the Lord with them. John Wesley, on his deathbed, said, 
the best thing of all is that God is with us. So this is a wonderful promise, but there are two important qualifications to be able to experience this. First one, conversion. You have to be a converted individual. This is not a carte blanche sort of thing for anybody at any time that anybody wants to. Uh, God is everywhere, and so just call upon him and he'll help you. This is for believers. This is for those who have heard the gospel and responded to the gospel, whose trust is in Jesus Christ, who look to his death as paying the penalty for their sins, looking to his resurrection as serving a risen Savior for our justification. So it's a wonderful truth for believers, but for unbelievers, it's simply not true. An unbeliever may have a sort of vague understanding there's a God, but not that personal relationship that Jesus promises to his people. But there's a second important qualification. And it has to do with the context of these words. The qualification of conversion, the qualification of missions. Missions. This is the context here. First, note to whom these words are spoken. The eleven, who along with Matthias, who soon would be number twelve, would be the foundation of the world, of, of, the, uh, of the truth of the, of the word of God, to be given out to the world. In Ephesians 2, 19-21, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We have no right to expect the full blessings of this wonderful promise in our text this morning unless we are involved in missions. Now this does not mean that you have to become a missionary as we think of it does not mean you have to sell your possessions and close down your business and go out to the mission field, either here in the United States or in a foreign country. But nevertheless, there are some things that as members of the church we need to be doing. So it's the activities involved with the Great Commission, of, verses, of verse 19 in particular, that this promise is especially carried out and fulfilled. The church functions between the Great Commission and the Great Consummation. The parables of Jesus, many of them, there's a kind of vague reference to a, a time period. It's, it's an indefinite reference to time period. It's that time that we're now living in, between Christ's first coming, Christ's second coming. The time of setting forth the gospel to all the nations. Obviously, then, the Great Commission was not just for those first century apostles, but also for people today. This is the need, this is why we have a need to know what's going on in our denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, particularly through worldwide outreach. Worldwide outreach is the title, the theme of our ministry in missions and Christian education. 
Christian education has a missionary emphasis as well, providing materials for the missionaries, people like us also, to use. Soon, you're going to be hearing more about the thank offering. It's coming up toward the end of November. It's an annual fair in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's an opportunity for you to give, not to reach into your normal tithing and giving to this church, but an extra special gift in which you personally express to your Lord thanksgiving for all He's done for you. And Lord, here's a tangible evidence of my thanksgiving that I'm going to give to the thank offering. That way you're getting involved in this promise here. And as you do that, you should be expressing thanksgiving that Jesus is in your life. He's real. He's with you. He helps you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. How appropriate it is that Matthew ends his gospel with these words. He doesn't end with the ascension. Notice that. A couple of the other gospel writers do, but not Matthew. He doesn't refer to that at all. Matthew makes no reference about the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Matthew is much of a missionary gospel book. And so he ends with these wonderful words of our text this morning. But now we come back to reality to us who are here today. And don't we face, experience the same think, thinking that the apostles must have felt, the 11, when Jesus gave these words the first time? Don't we feel very inadequate? Don't we feel the task is staggering? Let's bring it down to this area of Oregon, Corvallis, Albany, Lebanon, Salem, and so forth. This is where we're at. It's our mission field. Wow, what a job. There's so many unbelievers around us, so many people in, in ignorance and darkness. We grieve at some of, the, uh, of our relatives, and even friends that we've talked about, fellow employers, employees, and they just seem to have no interest in spiritual things. And well, well, what are we going to do? Well, we have to be faithful, faithful in sharing our faith, Remember my message of last time of just what's one thing I know? Once I was blind, now I can see. We share that. We need to do our best in this church to fulfill the Great Commission in various and sundry ways. Praying for our missionaries, learning about them, knowing about them. I dare say in the churches I've served, I would guess that most people in the, those churches don't know very much about OPC missionaries. They hear about them here and there. There might be something on a bulletin board, a little insert comes along, and they have a little interest, and then pretty soon they're just kind of out of their mind. But we ought to have these people much on our mind, not only in foreign fields, but in whole mission fields, and the, faith, the challenges that they face. As we do so, remember that our text, this, these are words of winners, Jesus, the great winner, because one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is Christ the Lord. But we who identify with Him by faith, we are always going to be winners for faithful in our tasks, faithful in our gospel witness. The Lord will honor that in His own way. 
And so we conclude with a word that sometime appears in the text, in the uh, English Standard Version, they don't have it, but it's a good word, Amen. Amen. And that does not mean, okay, I'm done writing, uh, have a nice day, see you later. That's not what it would mean if Matthew was closing this off with that word. It's certainly not a conclusion, because the text has future American, human history in, ahead. It means, so be it. Let it be so. That's why when we close our, pr our prayers, normally those leading or anybody leading a prayer usually closes with the word, Amen. Let it be what we've asked for, what we've shared. Lord, let this be. It's confirmation of Christ's promise. So Matthew's gospel then ends in a blaze of glory. And we are part of that blaze of the church of Jesus Christ until the final day when the Great Commission is necessary no more. Jesus with us, and when he returns, we in a very special way will be with him. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Join me in prayer. Father, we are your people this morning as we gather here to worship you. We know we have failed many times in serving you as we should, even in this area of interest in missions. We ask, O oh Lord, that we might be renewed in our interest in those, that we might pray for them faithfully as we hear requests come through, that we might lift these requests to you at the throne of grace. How we pray for our faithful servants out there, so many of them, not only in our own denomination, but in the church at large. We're faithfully serving you, but doing so knowing that you are with them. May we cling to this promise in our lives and be encouraged by it. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.